If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, once again, we have a great episode for you. It is with Rita Sorenen. And we are going to be speaking with Rita about being the face of your organization. Rita has been a tireless advocate for children for over four decades, which is interesting because uh, Rita does not have a degree in social work or child welfare. It, it's actually kind of far afield. I think I think it's something like landscape architecture or something like that. And so it's interesting. She she found a passion for child welfare and child advocacy work and has spent four decades of her career and her life dedicated just to this. And for about the last two decades, she has been CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, which, let me say, two decades anywhere as an executive director is amazing, but to be a two-time executive director is also incredible. And before this, she was the executive director of ACASA, which is court-appointed special advocates. And so, once again, she has such a strong commitment to child welfare and making sure that the children in our society are treated fairly and justly and equitably. Now, let me share with you why I thought we had to have a conversation with her about being the face of your organization. When I Googled Rita, she is literally everywhere. So I can't tell you how many podcasts, at least 12 or 15 podcasts, all of which she was being interviewed around adoption, child welfare, and more. And these are podcasts that focus in those areas of child welfare and foster care and adoption. Literally, cannot tell you how many different podcasts in that genre that she has been a guest on. And then when I turn to national publications, I see her in Forbes. I've seen her on the Huffington Post. Like, she is actively out there in national publications. Also, in my Google search, I found radio interviews. I saw TV interviews, speaking engagements at national conferences, presenting to, to groups of CEOs. It is rare to see an executive director this out there front and center for their organization. And since I know 
Whenever your executive director is able to do that, it is so helpful for your mission and for your cause. I wanted Rita and I to have that conversation. So Rita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so delighted to be talking with you today. Same here. And and I just have to share with you that in that little Google search, I was struck by the many ways your professional and personal brand are intertwined with the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, when I started this position 20 years ago, you're right, I've been here two decades. We were still working on the on the shoulders, quite honestly, of Dave Thomas, who was the founder of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, the founder of the Wendy's Company, uh, a national icon through his international icon through his commercials. And he really was the face of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption appropriately. But about six months after I started, he passed away. Mm. And so it was this really intense conversation with me and with the board and internally with myself. How do we continue to honor that incredible um, legacy of Dave Thomas? At that point, was still very strong in the American public. But knowing as time goes on, how do we continue to honor that legacy while we create our own sense of who we are in the public so that people can be as responsive and contemporary with this issue of foster care adoption as possible. And so at that point, we made the the determination that we had to be out there. We had to be visible. We had to have a voice, not just because we were now transitioning from sort of the face of adoption being Dave Thomas to the face of adoption being whomever, you know, whatever we decided that to be, but because this cause, children in foster care, children waiting to be adopted, children who are at risk because of abuse and neglect, wasn't something that was a robust conversation in this country. And so we needed to get out there and make it a robust conversation. That became that blending of who I am as a person, as a child advocate, who I am as a leader, as the CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, who I am as the person that was charged with carrying on the legacy of Dave Thomas, knowing that it was critically important. We weren't going to change the name of the organization. He was incredibly important to beginning this conversation about foster care adoption in this country by establishing this foundation. So all of that became tightly woven together as we as we really began both, both ad hoc activities and very strategic and tactical activities. And so it sounds like when you took the chief executive job there, you were not thinking, okay, I am going to end up really kind of being the spokesperson the way Dave Thomas is. No, no way. You know, you cannot replace someone of that stature, nor would we even want to. But having said that, we didn't want him to be forgotten either. Particularly here we are two decades later, There are lots of folks who don't remember Dave Thomas and who he was in relation to being the guy in the commercials, right? And so we we want to make sure that that legacy stays vibrant. But absolutely, there was no thought of replacing him. There was the opportunity now to figure out how we can elevate this conversation about the mission and how we could continue his legacy under that banner. And so what did that look like? I mean, obviously, you all as an organization had to figure out how you were going to move forward. How did it, what did it actually look like in terms of you stepping into that role? It was, you know, I will say for the first couple of years, it was daunting. It was very daunting because we were a different organization. We were much smaller. 
we were maybe a $2 million organization. We didn't have a real solid sense of where our place was in this conversation because we were simply moving from what he had done so well by being in public service announcements, by being a face in Congress and talking about legislation. He had helped elevate the awareness of the cause, but there was something missing. There was a sense of this is absolutely critical and we have to keep doing this, but children are still in care waiting to be adopted. Children are continuing to age out of foster care without being adopted to negative consequences. And so we began to pivot very strategically to some intensive programs that could both continue to elevate the awareness about the mission and the cause, but get much more deeply embedded in research-based activities that would help advance, truly advance, in reducing the numbers of children who are waiting to be adopted. So it was that kind of both programmatic and branding and messaging um, uh, conversations. And, and probably the first of that was really as we looked at doing some research on Americans' attitudes toward adoption. Let's get some input. Let's make sure that America, we understand what Americans think about foster care, about the kids in foster care, about foster care adoption. And then we can begin to drive very intentional messaging. And then we can begin to do some deeper research on where are the gaps, where we can use our resources to help fill those gaps. All of that comes with partnerships, with um, uh, the ability to see the scope of the issue at, at the broad scale while digging deep into understanding where can we make both policy and practice changes. And so all of that became, I think, that next step that, that those first couple daunting years of moving from sort of the, the foundation that was associated with Wendy's at a, at, a, at a branding level to the foundation that really had its feet on the ground and its, and frankly, its head in the clouds of how can we get this done. Mm. I'm struck by the fact that the adoption and attitude survey kind of gave you data that it sounds like allowed you to go from being an advocate to being an advocate and a thought leader, because now you had data and you could say, here's what we know. That's exactly it. And that's part of that. I think what we wanted as the true image, not just an image, but the true fortitude behind what the foundation does, that everything that we do has to be grounded in, in evidence, in research, in facts, because so much that surrounds children in foster care and the foster care system is rife with myths and misperceptions and perhaps attitudes based on a media story or, or one person's experience, but what's the reality about what surrounds these children and how can we assure that they have a, the right of a family? Um, so absolutely, that became, I think, the impetus that has driven us into substantial growth, into substantial, I think, um, collaborative activities across the nation in order to make life better for children waiting to be adopted. As you stepped into this broader role of not just running the organization, but kind of becoming the new face of the organization. Was there a learning curve for you? There was an absolute learning curve. Look, I am not, um, I'm, I'm a relatively shy person by nature. Um, it's not, I don't, well, I do now, but I, at that point, I wasn't striving to be on a stage. I still got terribly nervous making presentations. It wasn't something that I sought out. But what I understood is that responsibility of leadership, particularly in this role, demanded it. It absolutely demanded it. And so moving forward, and not just in terms of making speeches or, or being on podcasts or being, you know, talking to the media, but stretching myself out 
to really find the other thought leaders in this space and how can we work together and how can we um, develop relationships? How can we go to members of Congress and talk about this issue at a policy level and believe that, that these children belong at the table? It was all about how do we best represent these children? And as, um, as a former child, I felt like I had to do that. But before we talk about ways in which you built bridges, I'd really love for us to dive in. So you mentioned that you started off being somewhat shy, not, getting nervous when you went on stage, had to present publicly. How did you like? How did you grow beyond that? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of a lot of in the mirror, staring at myself. Practice, you know, a lot of remembering why I'm doing this. I will tell you that the passion for the cause drives the ability to do what you think you can't do, right? Um, that the stories that we would continue to hear and the families that we would talk to, someone needed to be their voice. Someone needed to, to represent them well. And so it's just about finding in yourself and stretching yourself and reaching for those um, those you know, big, hairy, audacious goals. And for me, one of those was being comfortable, making sure that if I'm standing up and speaking on behalf of the foundation, I'm hopefully saying something that will translate into what people want to hear. Um, so it was just about a lot of self-reflection, a lot of practice. Um, I did reach out. It had some great coaches, some great leadership coaches that I still work with today. There's still growth possible, even at this old age with this gray hair, there is still growth possible today. So leadership coaches, I think, are key to anyone in a leadership position. I, I'm struck by one sentence that you said in particular, which is, I think, passion for the cause drives us to do what we know we can do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's there's this um, I think it's it started out as a prayer. I heard this once when I was at an, at an event in, in Washington, D.C., and I think a congressional chaplain was there and it's attributed to Sir Francis Drake. I, or, yeah, think, you know, in the 1500s. But the, the phrases, no matter how it is, is really what this is all about. I think in the world of the nonprofit and it says disturb us when we're too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dreamed too little, right? Be because when we arrived safely, we sailed too close to the shore. In other words, stretch beyond those comfort zones. This is our one shot. This is our one chance. And for, again, for a, a, a nonprofit like this, where you're dealing with a very short timeline of childhood, one day in foster care waiting for um, a family, is a lifetime. And so we can't waste time on behalf of these children. We can't think small. We can't do business as usual. We have to ground it in evidence, but we have to think big. Hmm. Hmm. I love that poem. I'm going to have to look that up and put that on my wall. Love, love, love that poem. Wow. So I, I promised we would also talk some about how you built bridges with other thought leaders, because obviously that's a, also a big part of you becoming the face of your organization. You know, we are um, by design both, uh, you know, we have a couple of pillars of activity to raise awareness, but we're also a grant making organization. So it's a little bit easier for a funder to come to a table and say, hey, I'd love to have a chat. People are always looking to funders, right? But I, and I understand that. Having said that, underneath that funder grantee relationship, what we have is establishing true partnerships. And so it's not just about giving money out, it's about how do we do better? And so that first year that I was in, I probably met with, I don't, I don't know, I won't say hundreds, but dozens and dozens of organizations and other 
um, leaders, both in, in large foundations, small adoption agencies, national organizations. Um, I just made it my, my goal to meet with as many people as I could to begin to establish those relationships. I certainly had some from my former uh, position, and so I could build on those, but it felt really important in this paralleling what, what we do. We're all about family and community, if the leader isn't out there making those relationships that are important to the community of its organization, then there's a, there's a little bit of a misstep. So it really was just paralleling what we do every day. I also reflect, because you, you mentioned your former organization, I also reflect, I think most CASAs are county-based. And so you were going from a county-based organization with probably county-based or regional relationships to a national organization where, you know, you were having to build relationships all across the country. Exactly. It was. It was a county-based. Um, I was also chair of the board of the statewide association, so had that, that state. And I sat on the national board. Having said that, the day-to-day -day work was very regional, very small, absolutely. So it was. It was, again, another stretch for me, but more importantly, another opportunity. Here's another opportunity to drive change for children on a large scale and arm in arm, you know, we're wholly separate from the Wendy's company. We're an independent nonprofit foundation, but we have um, really strong relationships with the Wendy's company, and they have a vast reach in the business community. So we took advantage of those relationships, and they willingly allowed us to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm also curious to get a sense of what your transition from a county regional organization to a national one was and kind of understand, because a lot of our listeners are at more local or regional organizations, what were some of the things you did at your local CASA to be the face of that organization? Yeah, and, and those that know CASA programs know that they're deeply embedded in with the county commissioners, with the, the judges, with the magistrates, with the local bar association. And so again, it, it was not so dissimilar, just at a smaller scale. And frankly, those that know CASA organizations know that sometimes there's a little bit of competition or a little bit of um, antagonistic relationships sometimes between those entities. Um, and so we worked really hard to pull everybody together and say, what is it that we share? What common value do we share? It's the best interest of children. We may go about it differently, but let's understand what each other's role is. So again, it was, a, it was critically important in the CASA that we build those relationships quickly um, in order to make sure that progress for children was more about working together rather than working apart. Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. Uh, Rita, I need to kind of set the table for the next question. When, when I became the executive director of the LGBT Center in Philly, I always remember my very first day when I sat down with a member of the media and they said, are you prepared to be the gay mayor of Philadelphia? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they said, oh, well, um, you know, we're, we're going to be reaching out to you whenever there's an LGBTQ plus issue and we're going to be looking for a comment, as will all of these other media outlets. And admittedly, um, no one no one in the recruitment process had said this to me. It was not part of the job description. It was a little bit of a surprise. And so kind of like you, I, I had to get a little comfortable with it. But the other thing that I saw happen, some people would look at this and be like, well, why is it they always called off? You know, so no matter what, there, there are always... You know, I hate to say those haters, but, you know, those haters who are like, well, why is it Dolph's always in the spotlight? Why is it Rita's always in the spotlight? What do you lovingly say to, to folks that come to you and like, you know, gosh, I, I wish I wish that more people were in the spotlight around this? 
Absolutely. And not only within my own organization, but externally. Uh, look, when I started, we were a staff of maybe five. Uh, and so I had to be the, the face of the foundation. That's That was my role. And we worked really hard to develop those media relationships so that we could get the word out about foster care adoption, not about Rita, about foster care adoption, um, and, and built those relationships. I will tell you, I don't think, uh, only once have I said no to speaking to the press, and it's because there was there was a reason, right? So we always say yes, and it's always it always works fairly well. Having said that, we always refer as well, so that we'll say, by the way, you probably want to talk to this organization to get a little bit more information about what you're asking me about. So we will always make, whether or not they follow up on those referrals, I can't control, but it we will always, always say, here are some other folks that you might think about talking to, or here's a family, quite honestly, the face of the family, not not a child before they're adopted, but a family that has adopted, I think is an important part of the story. So we will always, you know, we vet our families that we work with and they know they willingly say, yes, we're happy to talk to the press. So here's a story that will move people much more than what Rita can do in telling their story of success through foster care adoption as well. So yeah, sure. And, and I appreciate that. And internally, we talk a lot about that. At some point, I'm going to have to start letting go of those reins. And other people need to start talking to the press too, as we start thinking about moving this organization forward. So we're, we begin to work on that as well. So I definitely want us to talk about succession planning. Before we do, you've piqued my curiosity. And I try not to like do surprise questions. You mentioned only once, did you say to to a media outlet, no, we're not going to take whatever it is, an interview with you. And you said there was a reason for that. Would you be comfortable like sharing what, what red line they were crossing that you said, no, we're not going there? Absolutely. As you might guess, when we have this conversation about adoption, there's a, there's a large canopy over adoption, infant adoption, international adoption, and underneath that, sometimes depending on the mood of the country, there's this underscore of abortion versus adoption. We have said time and time again, abortion is not our conversation. Um, it's not that, that, that um, we don't all have personal feelings one way or the other, but we're talking about children who are in foster care, who, who have been abused or neglected, and, and we need to get them adopted. And so we will not engage in a conversation about abortion. And this was this was an outlet that wanted to talk about that. And and they said that up front, like yes, yeah. And they understood when we said no. Okay, no. got it. So so mm -hmm. it, so it sounds like you know in a nutshell, you were kind of like, um, our, this is not our messaging, and so we can't have the conversation because this is not how we message. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I, I was just very curious. I was like, okay, yeah. what? What did someone yeah. ask you about <laughs> that you're like, no, we're not talking about it? Everything else is usually on the table. <laughs> yeah. And even at that, if it came up, that's that would be our response, that it's not our conversation. It's not our expertise. Yeah. And, and so the other big, for me, like elephant in the room I wanted to make sure we talked about. So you kind of became the face of the organization, you know, frankly, after after the tragedy of, of Dave Thomas passing away, and you've been the face for about 20 years. And um, forgive me for asking it this way, but Rita, I've, I've seen your LinkedIn profile. I am assuming you are somewhere nearing retirement. Somewhere in the next five to 10 years, you will probably retire. And so I have to ask, how is your organization in its succession planning preparing for you to not be the face in a way that's not disruptive for the organization. Absolutely. And frankly, my prior position, we did not plan well. 
and all of the things that could go wrong went wrong with that organization. And so I've been keenly aware of that, but it, you know, time creeps by and suddenly you think you're right. Sometime in the next decade, whenever that is, I will no longer be with this organization. And I cannot put at risk the work, the incredible work that we've done over the past 20 years. So for the past couple of years, with full support and engagement of the board, full support and engagement of my leadership team, um, we have engaged with outside consultants on, a, on an intensive succession planning process. For us though, it wasn't just about the CEO position, but that was critical, of course. This is about up and down the organization because we have grown from a staff of five to a staff of 55 right now with plans to add about 10 more in the near term. Um, and so we had to really look at not only the CEO position and, and how do we make sure that the senior leaders and other are well-developed and well-prepared and we have identified who might move into those positions, um, but up and down the organization as critical positions perhaps become open. Are we prepared to continue to advance people up? And so it was not only an intensive, and this is ongoing, as you might guess, this isn't just a one and done. This is an ongoing process. Not only have we done that intensive succession planning, but we've also done intensive skills identification, team development, leadership development, individual development that becomes part of the whole package, we hope, of what, what entices people to work here, what, what continues to allow people to believe that this is someplace they can have a viable career with advancement opportunities. So we are deeply engaged and embedded and accountable for some succession planning, absolutely. That's awesome. And the other thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about, you're I know how precious your time is as a chief executive, and I know all of the demands that are on your time. And so this podcast, while typically our podcasts are only about 35 minutes long, you set aside an hour for this, and we'll probably be on the Zoom call for a full hour thereabouts. And you, know, you probably spent 30 minutes or an hour prepping for it. And I know whenever you're done with an interview, there's 20 or 30 minutes when the adrenaline goes down. You're like, oh, that was <laughs> such such a nice experience or whatever. So, so I get that it takes a lot of time to really be the face of your organization. So what structures or tools do you have you created or do you use so that you can both manage you know, an organization that has 55 staff members and do all of this public-facing PR work? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a couple of things. First of all, I have a phenomenal leadership team that really take lead on. And, and they're the, the, the classic, I think, pillars that most organizations have. Fundraising and marketing, legal, finance, government relations, and strategic program development. And they really... And, and this was a learning for me, and it's happened most intensively over the last five to seven years. There was a point in which I had my fingers in everything. Not only was I on the road constantly, but I was approving everything. I was proofing everything. I was, I was absolutely doing everything. And I bet you were exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and I was raising, at one point, I was a single parent. Yes. Wow. So, so, you know, but, but I don't say that uh, for empathy. I say it because, because this is my life's work. It is my passion. But you're right. I think CEOs can also wear themselves out and that energy isn't there appropriately. So building a strong leadership team for me was critical and letting go of a lot, letting go of a lot. But also for the longest time, I think it was only a few years ago that I finally said, all right, we're gonna spend the money for, for the CEO and the leadership team on an executive assistant. I didn't have an executive assistant, someone who can manage the travel, someone who can manage all of those bits and pieces, right? But honestly, I've also just the past couple of years started building on my calendar 
hold time. It's simply hold time and no one's allowed to touch it unless I give them permission to. Um, and that's time for me to sit back and read or sit back and prep for something like this or just sit and think. It takes time to really, we just got back from a trip in a major state where we're looking to do some major scaling activity met with lots of folks. I need to come back and make sure that I understand all the dynamics that happened. Who do I need to follow up with? All of those things that really can only come from my desk, but unless I schedule that time to do it, it doesn't get done. So I think scheduling that time and not feeling guilty about it, not explaining why there's a hole in my, in my calendar um, and, and making sure that you have time to breathe, go outside, take a walk, whatever it is. Um, that's critical, I think, to this role as well. I, you know, in terms of actual tools, yeah, we've got all of the organizational tools and project planning tools and all of that. But I think those bigger pieces of allowing yourself time, surrounding yourself with great leaders who can take over lots of activities, um, and just making sure that you're focused on the right track every day. I love that. Thank you. Rita, I cannot believe almost half an hour has gone by. And if I don't get to the off-the-map question, we're not going to have time for me to ask it. And this is a little bit of a selfish off-the-map question, and it's really on your map because I'm about to ask you about foster care. So my husband and I are about four months into the process of becoming foster parents in the state of Georgia. And, you know, and, and our hope is to end up um, becoming the foster parent for an LGBTQ adolescent who's been, who's been thrown out or had to run away from home. And I'll share with you, in Georgia, based on how long it's taken us to get this far, I think we're probably three or four more months before we actually have a foster child in our home. But my question to you is, what advice, like like uh, the application stuff we got, I mean, we, you know, we just got to get it all done. Um, but what advice do you have for us as people who've never had children in terms of actually being a foster parent? So it's such a great question. First, thank you for doing that. We know that, they, that there are so many children waiting for incredible parents, either foster parents or adoptive parents. I think it's all about understanding first who these children are. They've been abused or neglected or abandoned. They have had incredible trauma in their lives and multiple layers of trauma. They're still experiencing grief and loss of the family of origin, no matter what happened to them. And frequently that's unresolved grief and loss. And so that when they do finally come into your home as a foster parent, they may be fine for a week or two, and then they may feel comfortable enough to start expressing all of those complex feelings that they've got inside. And you, you know, sometimes foster parents are like, I can't handle this. I don't, I don't know what this is about. They must not like me, right? And understand that this is a child that's been through such trauma. I think the second piece is understanding that you're dealing with the bureaucratic system. So that by nature, the child welfare system is lodged in county agencies. And even when they're private agencies, they have to be responsive to the county agencies, right? And that means overwhelmed, overworked, underpaid social workers frequently um, who have absolutely every intention of doing the right thing, but some days are stymied by doing that. Frequently unreturned phone calls may not be getting the best kind of support that you think you need. And so I think that willingness to stretch out and ask for help when you need it. And if that's if you're not getting it from the people you think you should get it from, make sure that you have developed a network of others before that child comes into your home who perhaps have had similar experiences so that you can reach out to that network. Patience, perseverance. And um, understanding, again, 
um, that you may have to give this child back, right? If you're fostering, the goal is to get that child home. And when you develop a relationship with that child, that's horribly hard. You're giving up someone that you may have established not only a relationship, but you may feel love for this child. And yet you have to give them back to this family. And so understanding why that's best for the child and knowing that that may happen. Having said that, I think it could move to adoption. And so setting yourself up with as much information as possible. What are then the possible post-adoption resources that are available to you? Everything from counseling to financial assistance to um, uh, making sure that this child has everything that they need, even if that's connection to their biological family and understanding how critical that is. We're all homing pigeons at heart. And no matter what happens, we still think fondly of our family of origin. And so being willing to share that, if it's safe for the child, with the child. Those are just some things, but there's so much in it. I think those key ones, patience, perseverance, and an, and an ongoing learning. You go through classes and you may learn about the dynamics of abuse and neglect and what these children have experienced and all of that, but dig in and learn as much more as you can about the system, about the structures, about the court system, about what these children have experienced, about what they need, what they, what they don't need. All of that's available in thousands of places, um, including at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, but all kinds of other places too. Thank you, Rita. That's really good advice. And, and frankly, some of the things I've really needed here. So thank you. That's that's phenomenally good advice. Good. Well, thank you for doing it. Uh, it's it's important. It's so important. And we need foster parents now more than ever. We lost a lot of foster parents during the pandemic. They just couldn't do it financially. They couldn't do it emotionally, physically. Um, you know, we've got more kids coming into care again post-pandemic. There's a lot of unrest in this country about foster care and adoption and what's going on. And so people that are willing to, to jump into the middle of that and remember there's just a child that needs a family, I think is critically yeah. important. Yeah. And I'll share with you, it's interesting in going through our classes and we're going through a, a, an agency, but again, as you said, it's an agency that works with DFACS and is under DFACS's rules. Um, they, they've been really clear with us because they know that ultimately we'd like to foster an LGBTQ uh, youth. And they've been really clear with us that there are so few right now foster families in Georgia that are willing even to accept an out LGBTQ youth that, that, that they're like, you know, every week, you know, dozens of kids end up in group homes because there's just not a foster foster family to take them in. And, uh, and that just, that breaks my heart. So um, it, it breaks my heart too. And thank you for doing it. And, and the, the negative outcomes for LGBTQ kids, you know, high rates of suicide, high rates of running away, simply because people won't accept them for who they are, makes you all the more important. Thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. And, and again, I, I genuinely appreciate the advice. Some of what you shared is really what I need to hear, especially the bureaucracy part. I know before we hit record, I share with you a little bit, a little bit about the bureaucracy, especially the bureaucracy part. Yep. And the delays and the court delays and you're ready to get your child to a hearing and it's delayed or it's it, it's canceled. You know, it happens and um, it's just part of the system. And I don't know that we should all be um, compliant about it. We, it. That should make us frustrated, too. And there are ways to start working on changing that. But just know that it happens. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Rita, thank you again. Thank you for coming on. And listeners, I always want you to know how you can get a hold 
of our guest. And so if you go to DaveThomasFoundation.org, you can find out more about the Dave Thomas Foundation. Here's a few things I think you should look at when you go to their website. The first is you can find their Adoption Attitude Survey. They have been doing this survey every five years since 2007. So I'm going to do a little bit of math. I think that means they're uh, they're doing their third survey right now, so uh, or they just finished it. So you should absolutely make sure you check out the Adoption Attitude Survey. They also, by the way, have an adoption-friendly workplace survey. So if you're an executive director, and I know the vast majority of our listeners are, you should really check out the Adoption-Friendly Workplace Survey. You know, don't you want a workplace where, where your team um, feels like they are supported if they adopt a child. So please make sure you check that out. And then last, they've got lots of great resources, white papers, et cetera. Um, I, I will say I have found the website as someone who is about to become a foster parent, super helpful. And, uh, and it is bookmarked on my computer now. And I would just encourage you to check it out. Rita, again, thank you so much for joining us. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. All right, listeners. So real quick, you know, if you missed that URL, it's not a hard one to remember if you know who the founder of Wendy's is, DaveThomasFoundation.org. But if you missed that URL, you can find it at our show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list. And of course, I am always grateful if you rate, review, like, and share this podcast. And finally, if you found this conversation about being the face of your organization helpful, there are two other episodes that you will undoubtedly find helpful as well. The first is back when we had Kristen Elworth on the podcast. Uh, gosh, that was almost 100 episodes now ago. And she did a piece on becoming the expert who reporters call. And I'll share with you, I think that's something Rita has done really well. When I Google her and I see all the different, all the different media hits she has in articles, news reports, radio reports, et cetera. I see that. And then the second actually was my own uh, my own vocal coach, Tracy Goodwin. And she came on and talked about the story your voice tells. Sometimes it's really important that we get that vocal coaching so that we are able to be the face that we are meant to be and we're able to be that voice. So you might enjoy either of those episodes. Now, listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And the lawyers always make me give you this disclaimer. I am not an accountant, nor am I an attorney. Neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please, please, for all things that are good in this universe, if you need that type of help, find a licensed, qualified professional. Do not get that help on a podcast. Find a licensed, qualified professional and get their counsel. If you're not sure what type of professional or who to reach out to, you can reach out to me. I'm happy to help you try to find somebody.